if you are a sports fan, you, and some of you are, you may have noticed over the past decade or so an increasing number of what are called walk-in or walk-up songs. This is simply when a particular player has his or own signature song that is played when that player enters. Or when that player is introduced. And it started off as a little bit more of a fringe, like for fringe sports. So like when Hulk Hogan came out, he had a song. Like it kind of started back with some of those fringe wrestling sports, uh, boxing, that kind of thing. But now, even in these typically old school Major League Baseball, relief pitchers have walk-up songs that are played as they run across center field to the mound. So if you're at a baseball game, you might hear everything from Chuck Berry to the Ramones, from Nelly to Tupac to Brian Adams, as these different pitchers come to relieve the starting pitcher. So I began to think, what would it be like if other jobs had walk-up songs? Can you imagine how great it would be if when you entered your workplace... Your favorite song played for you? You walk in and you hear like, uh, 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 and you'd be like, yeah, I am ready for work. Everybody else would know you're there. It would sort of be a, I don't know, I, I, let's imagine, but let's say like in my role as pastor, that there was like a, a walk-up song for me. So they would be like, you know, okay, as, you know, sermon or worship ended and terrible, okay, now Rick's going to come and share the sermon and as I was walking up. I, I just want to think through this for a second. It's, we're brainstorming here options for future services. I, I mean, I'm just thinking. I think it would change the way you receive the sermon. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. I can't stop it now. There we go. We have a campus council tonight. We can talk about it then. It's something we can discuss further. Well, of course, the walk in music is supposed to have the effect of inspiring and empowering and pumping up the crowd, pumping up the players. And sports and music have a long history. And even the most historical American universities have a song that's played during certain sporting events. It's the song that's played as the players come in to pump up the crowd. It prepares everyone for the competition, for the battle of sport that is ahead. So we wouldn't be surprised to remember that these school songs are often called the fight song. Now, songs sung before a battle, a real battle, with an army is not as common, but there are a myriad of stories of how songs and singing have shown up in the battlefield, have shown up in that arena, and have played a role in military victory, military encouragement to pump up and unite the troops. Winston Churchill requested that the song Onward Christian Soldiers be played on the HMS Prince of Wales as he and President Franklin Roosevelt were meeting to discuss the complexities of World War II in August of 1941, just a few months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
In a subsequent later radio broadcast, Churchill explained his choice this way. He says, We sang onward Christian soldiers indeed, and I felt that this was no vain presumption, but that we had the right to feel that we were serving a cause for which the sake of a trumpet has sounded from on high. When I looked upon that densely packed congregation of fighting men, of the same language, faith, fundamental laws, and ideals, it swept across me that here was the world's only hope. But it was a sure hope of saving the world from measureless degradation. And so there was a song, a call for the troops to stand against the evils of Nazism. Songs can be fight songs, from the sports field to the battlefield to the spiritual battlefield. Songs can be a weapon of our warfare, and it certainly can be a weapon of our spiritual warfare. Welcome to the third week of our considering the role of worship in church under this name, No Normal Sundays. Over the past few weeks, we've had an interview with worship leaders, with two of our worship leaders at this time of the morning, but we have more weeks of this sermon series than we have worship leader pairs, so there's no interview today, but we will have our last one with Dan Coleman and Barbie Coleman next week, so you're not going to want to miss our final worship leader interview. But we do have a special something for you later today, but we'll get to that later. Ooh, the intrigue. Today, we're actually going to pick up where we left off last week, working on this question. Why do we sing? Now, you can hear the whole sermon from last week on our website if you want to catch up if you weren't here. But for those of you who were not here, let me give you a brief summary of five reasons that we sing from Psalm 96 from last week. First, when you sing, you glorify God to God. You offer God the worth that he is due. And then when you sing, you remind yourself. We remind ourselves of God's truth. We proclaim God to unbelievers when we sing. We encourage one another in song when we sing. And we sing in hope of what is to come. We sing forward. We sing into. And we talked about how this is helpful, this last point is helpful because we don't always feel like singing. We may not always deeply at that moment believe the words that we're singing. We sing about be, not being overcome by fear in the very moments when we feel like we're being overcome by fear. But sometimes we sing into that reality. We sing forward into the hope, into the promise, into the reality. There's a sixth reason that I want to add to this. And I would like us to, discuss it to us to discuss it today. It merits, I think, a teaching of its own, which is why I moved it to this week. And is, it is this. When you sing, you wield a weapon of spiritual warfare. Songs are weapons in the spiritual battle. A.W. Tozer says this, many Christians view the world as a playground rather than a battleground. Many Christians view the world as a playground rather than a battleground. Now, I might want to argue that life is actually a little bit of both. 
that life can be a playground and can be a battleground. So it might not be as either or as that quote makes it. But I do think we usually put singing in the realm of the playground. It's fun, it's uplifting, it's enjoyable. But I think that singing is also an also. That is, that singing is as appropriate on the battleground as it is on the playground. So let's talk about three ways in which singing can engage us in spiritual warfare. First, we sing to call us as a group to rise and unify and fight our enemy. This is sort of like the walk-in song that I talked about earlier. This is the fight song. This is the song sung by, by European soccer fans as their team comes in, and you see these, these massive stadiums of 90,000 people at the Liverpool soccer game or football game singing a song as their team warms up. It's sort of the rallying cry for the battle ahead. It is the unifying call to join against a common enemy. We see this kind of singing throughout the Psalms. And throughout these Psalms, we'll see this mix of a call to arms with a call to sing. There's this juxtaposition that shows up in Psalms where, the Lord, where David will say something like, I call you to sing and I call you into warfare. I call you to praise and I call you into battle. And they're not two separate things for David. The song of praise, the act of singing, is part of the battle. It is part of the rallying cry to enter into the fray. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with song I give thanks to him. Psalm 18, 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And Psalm 44, 6 through 8. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes. And have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and He will give thanks to your name, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Notice the warfare language in these psalms, these songs. Sword, fortress, shield, stronghold. And yet there are songs that give us courage for the battles that we face, songs to encourage us to take up spiritual weapons of prayer and of generosity and of faithfulness and justice and courage. We gather with song to pull all of our spiritual weapons together. Singing is part of the battle sequence. Songs are part of the weaponry. And so Sunday mornings when we gather together, This can be a rallying time for us because the troops are together. We sing. We sing ourselves up for the battle. We sing, understand that the world we live in is sometimes more a battleground than a playground. 
We sing to push ourselves and one another to stand against the forces of darkness that press in on us. We gather and we sing songs to prepare us. But then we separate and head into our own lives, much of which we live separately from one another. But even then, our worship songs can be a kind of walk-in song, a kind of walk-up song to whatever it is you're facing. I don't think even still, if you have your own walk-up song, they're going to play it through the speakers at your workplace. We can still work on that, but I'm not sure they will. But it can be playing in your head. There could be a song in your heart as you walk into the challenges with work or children or relationships or school. You walk into these challenges with a song. When you wake up in the morning and there's a million thoughts in your mind and not all of them are helpful, you might pray to the Lord, give me a song. Pray to the Lord, give me a song. And that he would bring to your heart a song to sing. This morning I prayed that and the Lord brought to my mind the old, an old Chris Tomlin song, um, How Can I Keep From Singing Your Praise? How Can I Keep From Singing Your Praise? I haven't heard that song for a long time. But the Lord brought it to my mind this morning. I don't know what song he might bring. There's certainly ones that you can have sort of on a list to recollect that are very effective to starting your day. Something like 10,000 Reasons talks about when the sun comes up and a new day is dawning, it's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, worship his holy name. We remember as we wake and as we go through our lives the warnings of First Peter that says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You want to have every weapon at your disposal and songs are one of them. Secondly, not only do we sing when we enter the battle, but we sing as an appropriate rally for when the battle's been won. We sing in response to when we see God operating in our lives and fighting for us. We've already seen warfare language from the songs in the book of Psalms, but there's actually much more ancient songs of the Hebrew people, and one of the most ancient is actually a very warfare-oriented song that once again mixes the idea of song and the spiritual battle. One of the first recorded songs is in Exodus 15. The Egyptians pursue the Israelites. The Israelites experience the miracle of the Red Sea opening, and they cross the Red Sea on dry land, but the, the waters close in on the Egyptians. And afterwards, after seeing this great salvation, Moses sings a song. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Here are sort of some of the key phrases. Exodus 15, 1 through 6. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. 
I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. After Moses sings his song at the end of the chapter, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and dancing, singing. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The battle has merely ended not moments ago, and they're already praising God and bringing out song. Now, for Miriam and Moses, there was a physical reality to this battle, but they also recognized the spiritual reality. The battle was won by God, and therefore there is cause for reflection and rejoicing and remembrance and celebration and recognition of God's role as warrior. And so when we gather again as community with songs and instruments, we don't just celebrate the general traits of God, but we can celebrate God as warrior Praise God as master planner of the battlefield. Praise God as the victor in an epic battle against evil. We recognize God together as bringing us victory on the spiritual battlefields. And certainly songs like this can be part of our personal worship as well, part of your family worship or singing a song with Christian radio, or on your iTunes, singing songs that celebrate the victory and the power and the role of God in that victory. These are all still part of the spiritual warfare. These are all still part of the battle. So you have a song like Mighty to Save, where we praise God that He can move mountains, that our God is mighty to save. He's forever the author of our salvation. He rose. He conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So singing is warfare that could call us into battle, and singing is warfare that is a celebration of a battle. But thirdly, and very interestingly, songs themselves are weapons in the midst of the battle. While we're in the fray, songs can be a weapon To meditate on this a little bit, I want to look at a, it's kind of a relatively obscure Old Testament passage. So if you have access to a Bible or your smartphone, can you turn to 2 Chronicles 20? 2 Chronicles 20. This is the story about the king of, a king of Judah named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. 
We'll pick up in a minute in 2 Chronicles 20. I'll give you a little extra time to find it. We know from earlier texts that Jehoshaphat was a good king. He is called a king whose, quote, heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. So that already sets us up that Jehoshaphat's going to get it. He understands because his heart is courageous in the ways of the Lord. But at the start of 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1, we find this. The Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Muamites came against Jehoshaphat in battle. Now, I don't have time to talk to you about the history of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Muamites, but it's not a good scene right now. You have three enemies of Israel deciding, let's combine together all of our forces and destroy Israel that way, instead of all of us sort of like, you know, pinging on the, uh, the borders from different places. Let's you unify to destroy Israel. So this is going to be a massive army that aligns against Jehoshaphat. In response, in verses 3 and 4, we find Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord from all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So notice that Jehoshaphat is not unlike us. He's the king of Israel, yes, But even with his courageous heart and his faithfulness to God, he experiences deep fear. This threat shakes him. But what he draws upon are his spiritual weapons. Fasting, prayer, coming together in community. For he understood that this physical threat was at root and at heart a spiritual one against God's people. And that's reflected in his prayer that he prays in verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Do you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Did you not, O God? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built it for you, a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we will stand before this house and before you, For your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear, and you will save. Notice how profoundly spiritual this battle is for him, even though it is a physical one too. So this ancient king once again has something in commonality with us, but he may have something that is more insightful than, than we have. He may have an insight that is a little different from ours. Nate, you can just turn off the screen if you want because it just keeps blinking. I don't have all that much up there. You just have to listen better. I think Jehoshaphat, he perceives the spiritual battle much more readily than we often do. 
I think we enter into conflicts and difficulties and challenges in our lives. And maybe it's because of our sort of, you know, self-help American culture. I don't know. But we often work really hard to figure it out ourselves and to accomplish it ourselves and to conquer it ourselves before we often even perceive that there might be a spiritual battle underlying all of this. That there might be cause for prayer and fasting and talking and sharing with community in the midst of this, what we might say, oh, it's a problem, it's an issue, it's a concern when it may actually also be a battle that this roaring lion has found a way into your life. And so I appreciate Jehoshaphat's insight in this prayer that this is not just about his army and that army, but that it's something about the honor of God and the power of the Spirit of God is being played out between him and these enemies. And so he prays, and in this case for Jehoshaphat, the Spirit of the Lord comes down on a prophet Jehaziel. And in verse 15, Jehaziel says to the whole community, Do not be afraid, he says, the Lord says, do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. That last line could be a whole sermon on its own, but it's, it's worth just saying again. The battle is not yours, but God's. Jehaziel continues telling, Jehosh- telling Jehoshaphat to simply go down to the battlefield, stand firm, hold your position, And in verse 17, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. In response to this, Jehoshaphat and the assembly bowed their heads, and the worship leaders of Israel, the Kohathites and the Korahites, in verse 19, quote, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in a loud voice. These aren't just random people standing up to sing. They are the men David put in charge of the service of song when the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Israel. They were the worship leaders. They had been appointed the ministry of song. And so they stood and they led the people to sing. This was sort of their rallying cry before the battle. But there's more. Look at how the battle plays out. After this great time of worship, this sort of rallying together around song and the word, pulling together their spiritual weapons, they rise early the next morning and head out into the wilderness, out into the battlefield. And in verse 20, Jehoshaphat says, Believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat appoints his frontline troops in verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army. 
They said, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Notice that the frontline troops are not charioteers or swordsmen. He sends out singers. In the front line of this battle, he sends out the worship team. Worship team, you get sent out. And the army, it is a horde. It is called a horde. It is a numerous, numberless, sorry, numberless in front of them. And you can imagine Jehoshaphat saying, okay, Korahites, you're up. I don't know how they felt about that. I'm sure they were very, you know, energetic songs. (laughs) As they went forward on the battlefield. But look what happens. Verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were routed. What we discover is that the men of the opposing armies were sent into confusion by the Lord, and they turned against each other. And these three opposing armies that had for a short time had a very tenuous treaty with one another, turned against one another, destroyed one another, so much so that when Israel went in to collect the spoils, it took them three days to collect all the spoils. Now, I know that the Lord ambushed them and sent them into confusion. But I'm sure that there was some confusion when the worship team came out onto the battlefield. I'm sure there were some of the uh, Ammonites and Moabites who looked at each other and said, what is this that is happening right now? The battle was won with a song, with songs, with praise. In his reflection on this passage, John Piper says, the enemies of God are thrown into confusion by the songs of God's people. Or put another way, God has appointed the use of songs as an effective weapon against the arch enemy of Satan. And why would it do this? Why would songs confuse the evil one? Well, it's partly because I think Satan can't understand how people who have been so oppressed or in some way have been treated unjustly or in some way have been treated unfairly or somehow are in those depths of sorrow, in the depths of pain, that are in the depths of confusion. They don't know what's next for them, and yet they still sing. And I think Satan, what is that? It throws him into confusion that his weapons are counteracted with song. We have this expression that I think demeans the value of singing. We say, oh, I got a great price on this car. I bought it for a a song. I bought it for a song. I think God would say that might have been a bargain for the person who sold it to you. Because a song may have far more power than you imagine. 
A song may have far more strength than you imagine. A song may accomplish far more than you can imagine. There is a special kind of song in the Psalms, in particular, called the lament song. Lament is a word that means sorrow, but it's, it's almost deeper than sorrow. It's, it's almost like a, a soul cry of, of pain. Scholars say that 50 of the 150 Psalms contain some kind of lament, a full one-third contains some kind of crying out from a deep and horribly hurt place. And you know some of the lines. You know some of the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? And David doesn't ask that philosophically. He asks that from a place of a deep oppression from the wicked. And he says, why do they prosper? I'm the godly one. I'm the one following you. I'm the one seeking you. Why do the wicked prosper? He's not doing philosophy there. He's lamenting. How long, O oh Lord? <laughs> We've all had that lament, I think. How long, O oh Lord? How long do I need to wait for this? How long? Will this last for me? How long will it last? Maybe not just for my, me, but how long for my family or my extended family? How long might it last for my city, for my ethnicity, for our country? How long, even for our world, when you hear of the great injustices perpetrated all over the world. There's part of our soul that should bring forth the weapon of lament to call upon God and say, Lord, how long? And of course, we have the lament that Jesus himself cried from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, not a philosophical question, either from David or from Jesus. It is a deep cry of the heart, a longing, a deep longing for the kingdom of God to come, for the rightness of God's kingdom to be established across the whole earth. African-American slave songs have lament. There are lessons in lament. Frederick Douglass was a uh, um, escaped slave and became one of the great abolitionists and social reformers uh, of his era, of the end of the slavery era. And he says this, sharply responding to suggestions that slaves sang because they were content. He says this, I have often been utterly astonished since I came to the North to find persons who could speak of the singing among slaves as evidence of their contentment and happiness. It is impossible to conceive of a greater mistake. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. 
The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart. Elsewhere, he says, they tell a tale of woe. Their tones loud and long and deep. They breathe the prayer and the complaint of souls. Boiling over in bitter anguish. Every tone is a testimony against slavery. Every tone is a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. And I want to mention songs of lament for a primary reason, and that is we still often think of worship songs or spirituals or songs as like pick-me-ups. Like, I like to sing because it makes me feel better. And that can be true. That's, that's the playground of worship. And, I don't, and I'm not demeaning that at all. I think we've all experienced those moments where we kind of felt down and confused and we hear and we worship and we feel like the songs have uplifted us. It's like that walk-up song or the rallying song. But that's not the only kind of song. There are songs we sing when we don't see how hope will ever be fulfilled. There's songs we sing even in the midst of a future that is completely unclear. There's times when we cry out to the Lord and we say, how long, O Lord? Those are no less weapons of warfare. Because what you are doing is you are calling God's attention to injustice and oppression and sin and darkness and of your weakness. And the Bible says all the way throughout, the Lord hears the cry of the oppressed. So sing. Sing in the battlefield. When you're afraid, sing. When you're anxious, sing. When you're depressed, sing. When the dark cloud of anxiety forms over you, you can sing. Not just any song, mind you. I should throw this in. Sweet Home Alabama does not have the same effect. I mean, you could sing a Taylor Swift medley. It's not going to do the same thing. But this is, this is true. The value and quality of your voice does not matter. But the content of the song does. And so we sing songs, spiritual songs, Jesus songs, God songs, the Holy Spirit songs. And so no matter where we are and where our heart is, we can wield this weapon of song. The worship songs that we're about to sing are songs that reflect worship as warfare. And the first one, maybe one that's a little, little more obscure to you, it's called, O Church Arise. And I want to read the first verse, and then we're going to sing it in just a second. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With the shield of faith, with the belt of truth, we stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love 
reaching out to those in darkness. Join with me as we pray. Lord, thank you for the story of Jehoshaphat, the reminder that song is a, is a weapon that we can wield to confuse the forces of darkness. May we do so. And may we not be caught up in whether or not we are a singer or not a singer, but that we would look into our soul for that song that you are bringing us in the dark, hard times, that you would bring us the song to open our day with a rallying cry of faithfulness, that you would give us a song as we fall asleep at night to bring us peace so that we may rest in you, that you would bring us a song in the midst of our own oppression or when we see the oppression of others, that we would find a way to bring into that oppression a song. May you make us people who sing for freedom, sing for justice, sing for kindness and generosity. May we sing your kingdom onto earth. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray together. Amen.